Well, we've been on a series in the book of Revelation, and um, we're heading into uh, Revelation chapter 9. This is actually part 10 of our series, but Revelation chapter 9. And last week, if you'll remember, we looked into the first uh, four trumpet judgments against heaven and earth. And they resulted in a third of the vegetation, a third of the sea life, uh, fresh water, the light being destroyed and dis- diminished, and literally a third of the earth's food supply and water are gone. <clears throat> As I mentioned, there's a lot of apocalyptic movies, and since we were very much on a, in a movie age, you know, you can imagine from th- some of the things you've seen that Hollywood's tried to generate, I'm sure nothing compares, but a third of the food supply and water are gone from the planet at this point third of the natural light eliminated and after the fourth trumpet sounded an angel announced for all to hear that the final three trumpet judgments were about to sound each measurable were measurably worse than the one before it and these will be horrifying um, be so horrifying that god assigned a woe to each one it's kind of natural reaction when something happens that we aren't expecting like whoa but these aren't those type of woes these are where where literally the magnitude of god's judgment being poured out he assigns a the word woe to each indicating that each will bring extreme grief distress suffering and affliction and calamity i want to stop here though especially with us coming off of uh, the move in the service like we've had that this is not something for the believer to, for this to strike fear in your heart for yourself. If anything, maybe fear for those who don't believe, but this is uh, what is happening when the judgment's poured out, but the church is no longer there. So uh, I'm going to read to you Revelation chapter 9, the first 12 verses out of the English Standard Version. If you have one of the Bibles we supply, that's the English Standard Version. So, and in the fifth angel, verse 9, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. But only... Those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, they were allowed to be tormented for, uh, tormented for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And, and in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Verse 7, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like a woman's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is their tails. And they have, uh, they have as king over them the angel of the bombless pit his name in hebrew is abaddon and in greek it is called apollyon the first woe has passed 
Behold, two woes are still to come. So before I go any further, are we wanting to stay in here or are we wanting to dismiss the kids? Okay. I'm going to go ahead and, and before I get too far in, if the te- teachers want to go, if the teachers want to go back and take the kids, that's, that's fine. Kids, you can slowly go back. So we see this star falling from heaven, but it's, it's not a meteorite. Uh, uh, but rather, it's an angelic, angelic being. And the reason I say this is because John uses a personal pronoun describing the star, calling it him. And, and that he is given a key and opens a door to the abyss and reveals that 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 very act of giving him a key reveals intelligence. So this isn't a meteorite that falls when it calls a star. This is actually an, an angelic being. And then in Revelation chapter 1, there were stars in the hand of Jesus that were called angels or messengers. So now we have some, uh, now some have speculated this angel is Satan, um, seeing that he's fallen from the heaven and um, had these keys. But there are some problems with that belief. Um, Satan no longer possessed the keys of Hades and death, Revelation 1.18. And the idea that Jesus would return them to Satan seems unlikely to me. Uh, there's a whole other study we could do where when you look at the name given to this being, uh, Apollyon uh, in the uh, Abendadon, on in the, in, the, um, in the Hebrew and in the Greek, Apollyon, that when you look and cross-reference that that means destruction, then if you do a word study and go through scripture and look any time destru- destruction is used, it's put in con- connection with hell. And so when you look at that and look at the action of that destruction in with hell, um, it's not likely that Satan would be given any power to bring uh, damnation, if we will, or bring uh, judgment onto the people who are rejecting God. That wouldn't be in anything in the character of nature through all the word of God that Satan would now be the one carrying out judgment. So this angelic being, we see that is most likely sent from God, given, uh, given the keys uh, to the abyss. Um, further, fallen here doesn't mean rejected or ousted, but rather he was sent on a mission from heaven to earth for this specific purpose. So I don't know what this uh, angelic being's job was before, but all indications we have, this has been the whole purpose of this angelic being, is for this time and this moment to release this judgment from the abyss be handed those keys. And so this angel is one of the good guys on a divine mission to begin the fifth trumpet judgment. The word abyss means no depth, which is why it is also referred to as a bottomless pit. It refers to a deep cavern within the depths of the earth. Um, you, you ever watch like uh, some of those old movies, what was 50 Leagues Under the Sea or or I think there's a movie, The Abyss, and you know some creature down there deep, and they're out exploring, and some uh, watercraft that will go down deep. But the idea is this is without depth. It's basically a bottomless pit, and it refers to a deep cavern within the depths of the earth. If you go to um, Sildar City and go through the cave there, they'll give you the history and tell you how uh, they came up to this opening, and there's a hole, and there's hot air coming up, and they threw a rock, and they never hear, heard it hit the bottom, so they assumed they'd found a gateway to hell. And come to find out, it was so full of bat dung that the rock just got absorbed in that, and that was the heat from the dung. 
So instead of it being something scary, they end up harvesting the dung, and that's what uh, women's mascara is largely made of. So uh, ladies, thanks for helping out the bats to become um, entrepreneurs. Um, onto, per, never mind, I could have done a little wordplay off of that, but we won't. Um, so the word abyss. So uh, fallen angels, um, the scripture speaks of a place, uh, this place as the place where fallen angels or demons are incarcerated. You might say it's a demon jail. So this abyss, this area, it's like a place of captivity for fallen angels or demons. And the demons that possess the, the Gadrian man uh, begged Jesus not to cast them into this place in Luke 8.31. And so we see an angel from heaven that has been given the keys to the abyss, opening this dark, hellish prison of demons. And the smoke of hell literally rises a, a, above the earth so thick and so dark that it blocks out the sun. You know, they say that while we think that every inch of this planet has been already discovered, you know, with GPS and everything, but, you know, it's amazing. You ever watch America's Most Wanted and see some of those guys who went into some of the forests even in the United States and they're never found again? You know, if, if all the technology, all the men we have, there are places, nooks and crannies of this world, where God could be uh, supernaturally guarding where we'd never know this existed until this time. But this smoke rises. So this plague of locusts is one of the most feared plagues. Locusts are not uh, unfamiliar to, to Scripture and other parts as a plague. Um, locusts would invade the country, stripping it of clean of every green thing, uh, bringing severe famine. So they would feast on uh, plant life. Um, this abyss, uh, from this abyss came a plague of demonic locusts that lasts for approximately five months. And and all those upon the earth, with the exception of the 144,000, will experience horror after horror. And so such plagues generally occurred from May through September, or a five-month period. So this is very indicative of what you saw of locusts in, in Scripture or in that time period. But now this is a supernatural, if you will, a demonic locust that's being uh, loosed on the earth. God also used locust plague as a divine judgment against people. We know that because we see it when God used it for the eighth plague against Egypt. Remember, when Pharaoh would not let Moses' people go, would not let God's people go, and so the plague of locusts came. And so we also see the same thing recorded in Joel. Uh, in Joel chapter 2, verse 25, where it says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts had eaten. The crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. So these are no ordinary locusts. Their description indicates that uh, they have the power to hurt through scorpion-like tails. Sounds like a pretty gruesome creature, really. Um, just the fact that it has a scorpion-like tail. And then also, uh, these demons may assume locust-like forms, but... It also talks about breastplates that are impenetrable. These aren't bugs that you can just go around with your, your foot, squash them, or, or get your, uh, as seen on TV, bug squasher, and go around and kill them. These are going to be indestructible locusts. Um, the fact that they are demons are, and not locusts is seen in their leader, who is named Apollyon, which means destroyer. And normal locusts have no leader. They move where the winds blow. And further, these locusts come from the abyss where evil spirits are imprisoned, and so they attack only human beings rather than vegeta vegetation. They don't have 
a, they're not natural locusts, so they don't have a natural hunger for the vegetation. They're created just for that purpose of bringing uh, this plague on those who have opposed God. And so they are hell-bent, if you will, on spreading as much misery as they possibly can, including uh, horrible, excruciating agony. Now, I've never been stung by a scorpion, but here it's one of the most painful things, that, that the pain doesn't go away quickly and that it's uh, excruciating and, and uh, can even be deadly. And the idea of having scorpion tails only adds to the horror. Not only are locusts the most feared plagues, but also they belong to the largest and most deadly insect, insect tribe. Their bite can sometimes be fatal, thus ranking them with snakes in their hostility towards human beings. So yet, as malignant as these demonic creatures are, the Lord God has set upon them certain limitations. In other words, they can only go as far as the Lord permits because it says that they were to leave the vegetation alone. You're not to eat the vegetation. You're to only, uh, only attack the humans. And so it's ironic here we have a rebellion turning upon itself. As these demons who are in rebellion to God are now inflicting pain on humans who are also in rebellion to God. Uh, to me, it's not, it, it, there's some irony there, but in the same sense, think about it. If Satan's whole purpose was to steal, kill, and destroy, which the word tells us, then the demons who, who follow him would want nothing more than to be loosed on the earth to come and attack humans and bring pain and suffering. They know the end is here, they know that their judgment is coming. And if they can get one more jab at the, that creative being that God so loves, they send his only son, then they're going to do it. You know, they can't harm those the, with God's seal upon their foreheads, 144,000, but otherwise they're loose to, to attack anyone else. So finally, they're not allowed to kill or, or kill, but only torment. And this word torment means acute pain. And from this pain, people are going to want to die but won't be able to die. Can you imagine that? Death is out of their reach. To be at the point, I want to die, and I can't die. I, I would love to just be able to lay down and die, but I can't. But death will escape them. You could say that death isn't found at this time. It will actively run away from those who are pursuing it. And can you imagine wanting to die but not being able to? Movies have poked fun at, at, at different scenarios where people have tried to, they're wanting to die and they're, they're just so clumsy they can't even carry out the act. But this isn't a, a matter of humor. Literally, the torment will be so bad that that's the first thing they want is to die and it'd be the last thing that they can have. So, and this brings me to a very hard but mess, necessary teaching that there are many people that are physically, mentally, and emotionally afflicted who just want to die, but death is only within God's domain, not ours. I don't know if you've ever reached the point of depression where you truly, within your heart of hearts, wish to die. But I want you to know that no matter how much you may excuse that, that is definitely from the pit of hell because God doesn't, doesn't allow you to have that choice. That choice is his when you die. It's once appointed for man to die. It's his choice. Job describes this saying in Job 14.5, since his... Since his or man's days, are determined, the number of his months with you, that is the Lord, you have appointed his limits, so that he cannot pass. And Job's probably the best example. I've referenced him quite a bit in, in uh, a few years of preaching, but 
Job is probably the best example of someone who was afflicted beyond measure and who just wanted to die. You know, I, I try my best that when I start complaining about insignificant things that seem huge to me, to just think about Job. Oh, Lord, the, these taxes, I'm just so mad about these taxes. Well, I'm not scraping boils with pottery sitting out with my family telling me to curse God and die. You know, it's all from a reference point of, of truly who has it worse. But the physical torment of disease Job had, the mental anguish from all his possessions being stolen, to the deep sorrow he felt as his children's, of his children's deaths, no greater pain than that. And Job literally uh, despaired of life. In fact, the sorrow was so deep that he wished for his death. You know, I've said many times it was Job's wife who didn't have the faith. She said, curse God and die. But Job did wish for his death. Um, in Job 3, verses 20 and 21, it says, Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of, the, of soul who long for death? But it does not come. Job was just literally wanting to die. God, just put me on my misery. It's okay. I know I'll be with you. But Job talked about how his soul was weary of life. But God was withholding death from Job just as he was withholding death from many who desire it. And that's because he has a purpose for the pain and the plan for everyone's life that is unfulfilled. It's really hard when you have a loved one who is a believer and they're suffering. You're like, God, why are you allowing them to suffer? Either heal them or take them on. And we don't understand God's ways all the time. We, we can't use that as leverage with God to say, I will follow you, believe you, if you do this differently. Because he may have something for us that is even harder to bear. But we can't assume that it's going to be the, that God's way is always the easy path for the believer. With that in mind, we have to agree that we cannot shortcut God's plan for life because of pain. And so that's why the Christian stands for pro-life. Because it's not a matter of choice to save yourself inconvenience or pain or even where it may mean your, your death to be able to play God and make that choice for an uh, unborn baby. Or an elderly person who, who, you know, Dr. Kevorkian back in the day when that was the hot topic, you know, assisted suicide. It's not God's way. It's not the way that he wanted. Yes, I understand it's hard when we see them suffering. But see, Pastor CJ, you weren't there when my loved one was suffering so much. And it would have been so much easier for them to just be, to let go, someone to help them to move on. But it's not your decision. When you make that decision, when you try to reason it out in your head, basically you're agreeing with Satan that the keys to death, hell, and the grave does not belong in God's hands. It belongs in whoever wants them. That we should be able to take the keys from death, hell, and grave. We are, we are not equal to Jesus. He is a friend that sticks closer than brother, but he is not equal to us. So this problem stems from the feel-good society we live in. We only look at the here and now, or rather the future and the uh, rather than the future and the eternity. It, it, it's blaringly obvious to me that, that in the church we have to be careful that we aren't getting so seeker-friendly, so heavy on grace, that we forget that there is a serious, serious, deadly serious matter before us day in, day out. And that's our eternal soul 
and where it will reside for all of eternity. We don't want to lose that holy fear that, that God, I'm not, I'm not fearful you run away from me. I'm fearful what my heart will do. I'm not fearful of you going back in your promises. I know you'll stay on your promises. I'm fearful of what I might do in my sinful nature. God, protect me from making the decision that might separate me from you. We want happiness and self-fulfillment, and if we don't have it, then we want to opt out. What's happened is that society that lost sight of God's plain plan and purpose, it's imposing instead its own set of standards. You know, I, I want to take a moment here to say, and I'm going to tread very carefully on this because I don't want to, this come across uh, manipulative anyway. But there's times when I see the ability we have with the story God has given us as new song and with the, the, the blessings and the things that he has prepared for us and with the future we have, that we have a community all around us and why aren't we doing more to reach them? Why aren't we, why aren't we there door to door if that's what it takes? Are we waiting for someone to come into New Song that's got that gifting? Are we waiting for someone else to do it? But as a church, folks, I hate to tell you, and I'm not trying to step on toes, but we have always been kind of consider ourselves a pretty friendly church. But I'll tell you an interesting thing, not to creep you out, but these cameras are really a tell-all. I found that they have a very spiritual purpose because I can go back and look at how we interact with people who walk in the door that we don't know. And I was having a discussion with a few people, some of you know that are in the room, we are talking about this, and it'd be surprising to you how many people get ignored that walk in our church building. First time guests, second time, third time. That we can be having conversation with someone we always gravitate to and talk to. And we're only 120 people total if we're all here at one time, maybe more than that. But sometimes there can be 30 or 40 people here and a new person walk in and they don't receive any welcome, maybe but one or two. Nobody really talks to them. I've actually seen someone duck back out the door and leave. And that's not a long time ago. That's been recent. That everybody's so heavily in conversation, so into what they were doing, that a new person walked in to check out this church and find out if this was a body of believers, and they left. Because it was too, I would, I would too, if I walked in and nobody said anything, and I, everybody looks like they got something going on. It's like, oh, I'm in the wrong place. I don't do this to, bring, to, to make us feel condemned or anything, but to spur us on that, that it's easy for us to, to ignore what the great commandment says, that we are to love God first and foremost and then love our neighbor as ourselves. And if we take the, the easy way out of life's pain, CJ, those, those social circumstances that you're talking about, those, those scenarios, they're hard for me. I'm not the person that's an extrovert. I don't just go out and talk to people. But you know what? You better get to know them now because if you become a believer and you plan to spend heaven, all of eternity in heaven with them, you're going to be around them anyway. So you might as well get to know them now. But, but if we take the easy way out of life's pain, whether it be in social circumstances, whether it be in, in, in the choice of life for a loved one, for an unborn baby, or whatever it may be, it's against this love that we, we see in the great commandment that we're to love God first and foremost and love our neighbors ourselves. Because love never loses its purpose for living, and God's love is the antidote. When we love God, his love for us becomes so clear. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and by his stripes he received, we, that he received, we are healed. You've got to understand that if you, if you have problems making connection with people because of some uh, uh, social 
a thing that's happened to you, maybe you've been abused or something's happened to you to cause you to be an uh, introvert, then pray that God uh, is gracious and will help to change that because he still wants you to reach the, un, the unbelievers and the lost where his and his life becomes ours. Jesus became sin for us and paid the price so we'll never have to face eternal torment and agony. And therefore, affliction has, be, has a purpose in God's economy. No matter what your affliction may be, I mean, it seems uh, to, hard to compare um, the affliction of, of some physical ailment like Job had where we're scraping boils of pottery and uh, some, some difficult we have in social circumstances. But those are afflictions. Uh, you know, <clears throat> I was talking to someone about um, a believer who, who th- they're struggling with the way they act. And I said, you know, you never know what that believer has gone through before they accepted Christ. And they may still be working some, some, through some of the after effects of an abusive home life or an abusive relationship or the death of, of loved ones or something that has really caused heartache in their lives. You have to be patient with them. But we can't forget that Jesus paid the price on the cross, not just for our sins, but for our affliction. For him to be able to stand in the gap for us. And where we can't do it, he can. In this time of tribulation, it's so people can repent. With Job, it was to test his faith. And in the end, God gave Job back double for his trouble. He got back double what he had before. Now, I don't understand God's ways sometimes. And for me, I couldn't take my children and God take them from me and I get new children and, and, or maybe double the children and feel like I, I was vindicated. I mean, we tend to love the ones we have and, and just duplicating them and making, you know, I had three, now I have six. I'm still going to miss the three. But that's where we have to trust God that in his infinite wisdom and in his grace and mercy that his purpose and plan is perfected that Jesus paid the price for our affliction and he will stand for us when we are afflicted. God has, the, the writer of Hebrew tells us that we're to run this race of life with the endurance of a marathon runner. Today, I, Jenna and I met with a, uh, a gentleman from Thrivent. Uh, it's a financial company. They used to be called Lutheran Brothers and they were exclusively for the Lutheran church and they were so successful, they were one of the best-kept secret, secrets. They had actually rose to one of the high rankings on the Forge 500 list, but nobody really knew about them because they were only for the Lutheran Church. And now they've expanded out and started to offer their products to all denominations, um, but they are highly successful and able to beat a lot of insurance uh, people. And on top of it, when you sign up with them, you get a, um, $500 a year to spend on uh, giving way to charities. So you can, like, rule compassion, we can purchase things. So I, we're using ourselves as a test dummies for a new song and, and uh, submitted our information. He came back with some really great results. And so Jen changed her life insurance, and we got a better deal. And uh, so he starts telling us how he, this guy is very thin, and he's young, I think a little younger than me, and he's preparing for a half marathon. And I kind of jokingly said, well, I'll get in there with you, and then maybe I'll get a better rate on my life insurance. Um, uh, and so we were kind of joking about that. But... One thing about uh, marathon runners and endurance runners, I have run long distance before, and I have, done, uh, I have been in athletic-type situations where it's been like a marathon, whether it be swimming or anything else, but long distances. And here the word for race is where we get our English word for agony. 
race and agony. It's synonymous here. So what the Lord is saying is that this life is filled with struggle and conflict because that we live in a sinful world, but we're in a race, which is agony. So we are to run with endurance to the end. And this is not a 100-yard dash, but a long-distance marathon. Now, in every marathon or any long-distance athletic event, um, there's a point where the runners hit the wall, so to speak. You hit the wall. It might be, if it's 10 miles you're going, it'll be like mile three. You'll hit the wall. If it's 20 miles, it'll be like mile six, but you'll hit the wall. If you're swimming and you're swimming a long distance in the ocean, going against that tide, against that current, and you're going 10 miles or 14 miles, it'll be the first few miles you hit the wall. And this is where every part of your body hurts and your mind has only one thought. It goes like this. Are you nuts? Quit and stop the pain. Why would any sane person do this to themselves? That's what you begin to say. Whether they want to admit it or not, you have that conversation in your head. This is stupid. I could go home, sit on the couch, eat my Cheetos, and watch other people do this and cheer them on. But you signed up for it, you committed to it, and there's something inside of you, if you're that true athlete, there's something inside of you that says, but when I sit on the couch, eat the Cheetos, and it only lasts for so long, I look down on my gut, and I start feeling horrible about myself. So I'm going to complete this, otherwise I'll regret it. And the problem with listening to this uh, thing about are you nuts or are you going to quit is that you quit, you don't cross the finish line and receive your reward. Now in the Navy, one thing I learned is that when you hit the wall, you're literally at 40%. That your mind will try to shut you down at 40% of your potential. That's not just a motivational thing. It's actually a proven fact. That if you started out here tonight barring that you have any physical ailments it shouldn't be like jumping into long run but you start out and you hit that wall that you're literally only 40 percent of the distance that your body could physically take you right then it's your mind that's stopping you it's the thoughts it's the discouragement in your head that's stopping you now as many have used the description of these locusts to try to explain them by their characteristics as horses they're posed ready for battle the crowns they're wearing uh, reveal their authority to conquer and having human faces symbolize their determination and intelligence and while this is all well and good what we know is this that they're really bad dudes who enjoy their work of inflicting pain and torment on the human population and the difference from that marathon runner is at this point the person who spiritually is trying to run the race is the church has been raptured and the holy spirit is not they are not having the connection with god that they had the opportunity to before and so when they hit that wall, they're not just hitting a wall, they're hitting the wall of China. And so when these locusts come, it's going to be more than they can bear. And so where they say, this is nuts, why don't I just go home, they're going to wish for death and they and it can't come. They're going to wish they could literally die and they can't. One woe is past, two more yet to come, and, there's even wor- and they're even worse. Revelation 9, 13 through 21 says, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from, our four horns, from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the, the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. 
And I heard their number, verse 17, it says, And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates like the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. So I don't know when the sulfur, or they're referring to just how sulfur looks in its natural state, or if they're literally looking like it's a dry fire, like sulfur might burn. And so it's got this appearance of fire and sapphire and sulfur. And the heads of the horses are like lion's heads. And the fire and the smoke and the sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands, nor give up the worshiping uh, the demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Verse 21, nor did they repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, and their thefts. Listen, folks, right now what we're seeing at these end times with people being totally unrepentant, you know, um, my sister posted a picture that they've already put up Halloween decorations for Halloween before we even, even celebrated Independence Day. Everybody knows I'm no fan. If you don't know, I'm no fan of Halloween. Uh, we don't celebrate Halloween at the church. We, I don't do it at my home. What you do at your own home, that's between you and the Lord. But as for me and my house and the one he's put me in charge, the shepherd, we don't celebrate it. Um, the focus, even if you could make the argument that used to be more innocent, the focus has turned very evil. And the fact that they're pushing it further and further ahead before we've even celebrated our Independence Day tells you where the focus really is in this world. Even in Walmart, they're supplying food on the tables for 90% of my relatives. <laughs> but yet, we see the signs. But when you get in arguments or when you try to push the agenda of Christianity on those who have their hearts set on defying God, you will not win them that way. You will not win the argument. You know why? Because you're right, but their ears are deafened to it. You're, you're correct in the truth that they are going against God, but they will not have any of it because they don't believe there's a God. Proof of it is here. You've got these people who have seen the rapture of the church should have woke them up. There's already, you know, a third of the resources and the food is gone. These wild scorpions are released. A third of the people are now dead also because of these horses with the smoke and the sulfur and all that. And the sky, the third of the sky is dark. All this has happened and they still will not repent. That is the path we are on. You understand? These are not aliens. These are not Martians. These are people who, whether the, if, if this is to happen uh, close to our lifetime, it will be the, the grandbabies of those probably being born soon, if it's that soon. But it's coming. And there will be people who are just like you and me, with the exception of they chose not to follow God. And so the path of their life took them down a, a path of destruction. And eventually their hearts are severed from any ability to feel the, the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And so they reject God even in these crazy times. Beasts that you wouldn't ever believe even from a movie if you saw it. Yet they're going to reject, they're going to reject turning away from their sin. It may be that they actually believe God is real at that point. It may be that they actually know where their end is heading. But they have let the things of this world become such idols to them, they cannot let it be pried from their hands. That the gold and the silver and all those things, the entrapments they've gone after, are now too strong in their hearts that they can't let go. So the sixth trumpet judgment, 200 million army, 
These are fallen angels who have been kept bound in the river Euphrates until this divinely appointed time. Uh, the Euphrates River is one of the original boundaries of the land promised to Abraham in Genesis 15, 18. And then across its shores, the Syrians and the Babylonians descended upon humanity with great destruction. And so William Barclay said that these angels, uh, punishment coming from uh, that part of the world that brought death, disaster and slavery, that the army they command has been questioned, however. They, a lot of people believe that, that this 200 million uh, person army is China's army. Now, I'm not going to get into speculation of that. There's no way to prove that. There's no way to know that. But just so you know that that's what a lot of people are believing, that this will be China's army because of the numbers. I don't really know. It could be a one-world government by then, and it won't really be China. It'll be China, America, whatever. <laughs> It'll be whatever it is then. Others see it as similar to the fifth trumpet judgment in that these are demonic and humanity won't be able to stop them. Seeing their destructive power is reminiscent of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But the real issue isn't who they are. It's really of no importance to us right now who they are, but rather that they will inflict upon the world one-third of the world's population will die. And this is by far the most intense of all the judgments. And this death toll of one-third added to the death toll of one-fourth earlier at the fourth seal judgment, along with all those who died as a result of the first three trumpet judgments, and those who have been martyred for their faith, this is beyond counting. I mean, at this point, this may as well, uh, this may add up to over a half of the earth's population. It's mind-boggling. If you watch any of those apocalyptic movies, I mean, you know, even on there, they're running into masses of people here and there, even though there's desolation, a lot of death, but half of the population of the world, gone. The expanse of time that you could travel and not run into another human being at this point would be incredible. This is seen in the last two verses, um, but the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Murders, the sorcery, sexual immorality, or thefts. Think of the top things that are going on right now in, on our, in our country and across this world. So they didn't repent of their idolatry, and I won't spend much time on that, although I have a pretty good section on that. But it's, it's the fact is idolatry can be anything that you put before God. And, and that's not just a little pet statement from church back in Sunday school days. It's true. If, if you make your job, I could make ministry my God. And I could ignore my family. I could um, not do right by them. I could make myself so busy with other things that I ignore the first responsibility God gave me when I made vows to my wife the first to honor her and to take care of her and then my kids and put something else that God put in my path and excuse and say, well, God's put this here and I've got to do this because he asked me to. No, God first asked me to take care of my family. Everything else comes second. And so that can be your God. You can literally think about the Pharisees. We're so hard on them. We're disgusted by them. Their robes, their pompousness, you know, look at me. And I imagine in their conversations, there's a lot of eyes and what I'm doing and what I got going on. Guess what they're bragging on, though? The church. They're bragging on their ministry. But not because they truly love God. It's because they truly love being the minister. They truly love the position. They truly love the power, the recognition, the accolades, 
that, whoa, look what you're doing for God. And then Jesus himself tried to confront them, and they wouldn't hear it. And let me tell you something. One of the keys to knowing if you let somebody be your God is let somebody try to tell you that it's become your God and see how riled up you get. I've seen it happen. Try to go to a good brother or sister and say, look, I think this is kind of getting... No, you don't understand. I've got this under control. I've got it. Got it. They won't even talk about it. It's become too important. It's become too much uh, of, of an idol. They can't let go of it. And even the, even the thought of someone uh, challenging them to let go of it is just too much. The Bible says that money isn't the problem for a lot of, it's the love of money. And so when we see the reference to silver and gold and the things made of wood, it gives reference to the world will truly be all about the dollar or the, or the money or the gold. It will be about the finances, about the possessions. It's ironic we have printed our money and God we trust when it's really not what it's all about anymore. Our nation truly doesn't trust in God. But our church does. And there are factions of the church and people in other churches that do, but, but the nation itself as a whole does not trust in God. So we'll move on past the idols as I get ready to close here. We're going to just look at a couple things. Um, Deuteronomy 11, 17, and 18 says, Take heed yourselves, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you. So John also reveals that they didn't repent of their, their murders and all those things we mentioned. But sorcery also includes astrology, palm reading, seances, fortune-telling crystals, amulets, charms, magic spells, and the use of drugs. Christians don't even be looking at a horoscope. This isn't just old-time preacher stuff. I'm telling you, the Word of God, will, just as plain as day, you're messing with sorcery when you do. Don't mess with horoscopes. Don't Palm readers, spiritualism, you, you do that, and you're, you're setting uh, a precedence in your life that you'll accept anything and everything that comes along, even if it's ungodly. So just don't even mess with it. Uh, drugs, uh, the reason I miss, mentioned drugs is because the word for sorcery in the Greek language here is where we get our word pharmacy. So um, if you talk to any long-term math addicts, they will tell you that they see shadow people and they talk in a language they understand, but yet they, that they, they know what they're saying, but they can't understand the words. Um, there's some commonalities between all math, math addicts that, that you'll hear that out of 10 or 20. You'll probably hear it at least from 15 of them, that they all see these shadow people, that, that drugs are definitely tied into the spiritual realm. The reason they're destroying lives as effectively as they ha can and they're so addictive is because it's from the pit of hell. So don't mess with that. Uh, you, can't, you can't dabble in that. You can't even let it go if you start to get addicted to your prescription medication and think, well, a doctor's given it to me. I... I can't seem to do without it. If you think you're getting addicted, then the enemy is trying to get a foothold and you need to get the church to help you and your doctor to help you and you need to be set free from it. So uh, we'll move on. Uh, I want to end this and say that God takes no pleasure in seeing his creation go through such wrath. Here, as we're wrapping up with Revelation, there's a lot more to the book and we've gone on a ways, but I'm ready to go on to something else. Feel the Lord getting removed. So let me just end Revelation with this. God's desire is no one perish. That's you and that's everyone that you'll ever see in your whole lifetime. That every single one of those faces you've ever seen, your enemies, the people you don't like, the people you hate, the people you love, every single one of them, it's God's will that they don't perish, but they have eternal life. If we've secured our place in the Lamb's Book of Life and we know where we're going, then we have one mission at that point is to take as many with us as we can 
And that is why it's a race. It is a fight. We're going against the devil. We're going head on with the one that hates the very fact that God loves us so much. We can't drop our guard for a moment. You can't get too busy for your family because the devil will get a foothold. He'll break apart your family and your kids and your wife and you will lose out on your relationship with God and you'll find yourself so far from where you were, you won't recognize yourself or your family any longer. It happens. You can't fool yourself into thinking it's, it's, it's not going to be me. If you, if you make other things more important than your family and leading them to God and setting an example of a priest in the home, even single moms, the priestess of the home. If there is not a father there, Jesus, God can be the father to the fatherless. So make your priority right now that because of this judgment being poured out, you have to make sure you're allowing God to strengthen your home as strong as it can be because you and your family are called into battle. You're called to run a race. And you have no time to waste. You have no time to dilly-dally. Tomorrow's business, tomorrow's job tomorrow's meeting tomorrow's whatever has no importance in comparison to the kingdom of god and if we're losing sight of that then we are we're more far lost than we thought and we need to come to a point of repentance and say god forgive me for letting my mind think for a minute that anything is more important than your kingdom amen let's let's pray jesus i thank you lord for these times that i am just one of this flock god you've called me to be a shepherd but i am I am with friends. I'm with family. God, I am in, a, in the most comfortable place I will ever be in my life. Among people who spur me on, who encourage me, who love me, will, will correct me when I need it. Lord, I, I'm in a very healthy, good spot. But Lord, even I can lose sight of the prize. I can lose sight of my mission. I can lose sight of what you called me to. I can get so wrapped up thinking that now... Here I am, 42. I guess my life is just coasting now. But God, it doesn't matter whether I'm 42 or 92. You're still my God, my King. And you've called me to a greater purpose than to glide or coast and let the enemy take up the slack. Lord, stir up the army in this church, God. Grab a hold of their hearts and set fire to our souls, God. Jesus, we just thank you for what you're doing in the hearts of men and women tonight. Lord, I pray over our children. Protect them, Lord. Where the enemy is trying to get a foothold in the home and they're, they're hearing arguments, they're hearing fights. They're, Lord, they're seeing, they're seeing the effects of the enemy tearing up their family. Lord, protect their little minds and protect their hearts. God, help them, Lord, to see that you are still the King of kings and Lord of lords, even in the midst of all the trials, the affliction. But Jesus, you're there stand in the gap. You paid the price, and we thank you for it. With every head bowed and eye closed, if you, if you need to make something right with the Lord tonight, if, if the Holy Spirit has awakened in you that you have let something become your God, something become your idol, right now, smash it in the spiritual realm before the Lord and say, I'm done with this. I will not let this be an idol to me. Those moments I had at the altar, whether it be a teen, a child, a young person, a young married person, whatever it is, they're not done. It's not over. That's not the past. Those moments, those times when you, you, you bring me tender to you, God, and I'm, I'm in a moment of tears and brokenness before you, they're right around the corner. I accept it. I'm, I'm striving for it. I'm running the race. God, break my heart. Spill me out that you may fill me with your love. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Love y'all. And uh, I can't even remember since the way the service went what we've got coming up next other than I think Sunday. But I don't know if we have any other events coming up. Do we? We didn't do announcements. Nothing coming up. Okay. Love y'all. Have a great night of fellowship. And uh, if I don't see you beforehand, see you Sunday.